Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. Father Gregory, what's going on? <laughs> um, let's see, not much is going on. We're rocking and rolling here at the end of summer, getting back into the swing of the academic year. I'm beginning graduate studies. Good. Yep. I'm enrolled at the University of Freiburg, which is in Switzerland. Yes, you'll be going there at some point, maybe. That's right. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So the hope is that uh, I get there soon, but it's dependent upon the visa situation, which is, you know, promising, but yeah. just slow. So I will begin, or I have begun, working on my dissertation, but um, in my bedroom in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. So it's like being in Switzerland, except yeah. it's different. And then summer travels, did you get vacation at all, or did, would you just stay quarantined for a bit? Um, let's see. So I went to Colorado with Father Jacob Bertrand. We went to Focus Summer Projects. And, uh, well, it's this thing where Focus has a bunch of students, and those students all work at the YMCA of the Rockies in mm -hmm. either Estes Park or in Granby, Colorado at Snow Mountain Ranch. And then when they're not working, they're going on trips, excursions, and they have the opportunity for spiritual direction, adoration, confession, mass talks, and they bring uh, priests, chaplains in there to uh, facilitate or help with that. So we were there for three weeks for that. And then we had two Thomistic Institute conferences, our student leadership conference, which was sweet because it was a thing that happened in person. Mm -hmm. um, so anything that happens in person yeah. is basically sweet. How many sweet. people? Uh, there were 50 students. Now don't out yourself on the uh, like legal stuff. So. Um, <laughs> we were we were 50 persons at all times. Okay, that's always right. Always and everywhere. Always 50 everywhere. persons. Yeah, and always never six, in excess. Six feet, six feet apart, good to go. Yep, exactly. Okay, that's great. Excellent. And then we had an intellectual retreat with Jim Madden from Benedictine College mm -hmm. um, called Virtuous Autonomy. And yeah, the recordings from both that conference and that retreat will be going up on the Thomistic Institute podcast. I don't know why I'm still advertising for the Thomistic Institute because I don't work for the Thomistic Institute anymore, but I'm that committed to the there brand. You go. It's a great project. It didn't just give you good money. They uh, <laughs> flash any money. Um, <laughs> they have a good, they produce a good product. Um, yeah. Okay. And then should we, uh, should we expecting to see any, hear any God's planning from the Rockies episodes? Uh, no, we had plans to, but yeah. the um, Wi-Fi and the service are so atrocious that to try to attempt anything technological in the Rocky mountains um, is a recipe for disaster. That. That's it, yeah. So we just resigned ourselves to relative silence and uh, we made it work. Yeah. 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 And people, yeah. So and people made it okay as well. And there were other episodes I suspect. So we're good to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. We had a backlog. I mean, we recorded everything live. Always, Always live. Always, Always live. live. Yep. Yeah. COVID live. Um, so anyway, this is, uh, we're getting near the end of the summer here because, well, we are at the end of the summer because people are back in school and then they'll be rejected because schools will close down at some point <laughs> like they have been doing. But so God's plan will be more important than ever because you'll need something to do when you're doing online classes and such. Um, but at the same point, it's still maybe we'll say, because summer is going to be extended considering that you'll never go back to school yeah. um, this year. So we could talk about summer reading programs. Mm. We generally do literature episodes on things. Yeah. Um, and so this seemed like a good time to talk about one of our favorite authors, mm -hmm. the two of ours, um, the two of us, uh, a manly author, you could say. Mm -hmm. So we want to do an episode on Ernst Hemingway and to talk a little about him. So both of us had experience with him. Um, what, how did you get it to, to Ernst Hemingway? So one of our conferers and classmates, Father Raymond Snyder, really likes Hemingway. Uh, I think that he um, he read a Hemingway novel after having watched Midnight in Paris with Owen Wilson. It's like one of the only Woody Allen movies right. that most people like. Yeah, Van Gogh is like the, the Starry Night is on the uh, on the, the, yeah. the poster for that. I haven't seen the movie. I've seen another Woody Allen movie, and I don't get it. 
Um, but apparently this is the least Woody Allen, Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Uh, so it's the most palatable to people who don't like Woody Allen. Um, what but is, yeah. Does it, what, is it, what does Woody Allen have to do with Hemingway? Is it based on? Well, it's, it's based on the lost generation. So I think uh, it takes place in 1920s and 30s Paris. Yeah. So you meet all of these different literati. Oh, um, if that's a word, sounds like a word. Yeah, it's like intelligentsia, you know, yeah. um, might be a word, might not. <clears throat> and uh, one of the people that you meet is Hemingway and he speaks in very like terse, um, uh, brutal prose, which mm -hmm. I guess is supposed to reflect his literary style. But yeah. um, Father Raymond was charmed by the portrait and so picked up A Farewell to Arms. And then he recommended it to me mm -hmm. and I read it and then I couldn't stop reading it. That's well, that's just a story of anyone you read, really. Is can't, can't stop, won't stop. But yeah, by the way, we should probably do an episode at some point of authors that you, that you haven't read all their books because I don't know who they like. Is there any author you've read just one of their books? Yes, her books, and then said, That's it, I'm done, I'm not going to read the entire corpus. Um, yes, that might be an interesting discussion. That might be an interesting like, There are a couple of books that I read one of and then basically just put it down afterwards and said that was terrible. James Fenimore Cooper, I read The Prairie. Okay. And um, it's like high American romanticism. Mm -hmm. And it's so devastatingly boring that I actually once met a person who was writing her dissertation on why Fenimore Cooper is so boring. Oh. Like it is, it's an established um, intellectual yep. academic trope. Wow. Boring okay. is sin. Yeah. I also tried to read Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is written in a dialect. Um, it, like, you know, like a kind of, I, I think it takes place in the South during a period of slavery. But the dialect is really hard to track. And so you have to read it all out loud, yes. basically, to, yeah. to make sense of it. But yeah. I grew weary. It was assigned to me in high school. Um, ooh, no, yeah, that's basically it. Okay. I mean, those are the ones I can think of. Yeah. There are wow. a bunch of other things that I've only read one of, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. Like the Bible is written yeah. by God. Yeah. You know, he hasn't only... written this, as far as I can tell. As far as we know, <laughs> dear listener, um, there's only <laughs> one book that he's written uh, yeah. by himself. There's that whole sand scrolling business in John and John Eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eleven, but they'd not save that. No one knows what he wrote. He Hard to say. Probably just one of the Psalms, making a couple corrections. Anyway, um, yeah, that's true. Something like you had the opportunity to read a number of books. You said, <laughs> you know what? I read almost everyone's all of their works, but you're so bad that I'm not even going to bother reading you. That's that great. That well, that makes me sound well. It's Maybe that makes true. me sound accurate. It's but just true. Yeah, yes. it's like a strange completionism slash No, no one's judging you. Psychologists might be. And other people Thank aren't you. judging you. No. I judge myself. Um, what I think about Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> when I think of Ernest Hemingway, uh, I don't think about 20 books to read, but I think about giant sweaters. Um, giant sweaters, say more. he, well, I mean, I guess maybe I'm a visual person or something. Or, I mean, we can always make that up, I guess. But when I think of Ernest Hemingway, who's always known for having these sweaters on, they're big fit thick knit sweaters okay. you think about like you're stuck in the in the cold for a while on a boat or something and they have large necks large like turtleneck kind mm. of things on them or something so that's what that's what i associate with ernst hemingway is like beard giant sweaters with with these big necks on them so mm. wearing a tie or anything and just severe manliness but we should probably do some bio biography kind of stuff so ernst hemingway if you everyone probably knows him because you probably most people who listen to this you've probably read old man of the sea mm -hmm. um which won the uh then won the pulitzer prize was that national book award i mean it was a bunch of these things right it may have won both i know he won, he won the, the nobel, nobel peace prize, prize. Yeah. yeah he did not, and he sorry, said not the peace prize i'm sorry he won the nobel Literary, prize for literature yeah, exactly. apologies yeah. no no and when it was granted him he said i can think of like three other people like who it ought to go to, like Carl Sandberg. I was one of the people whom he mentioned, but then he found out that there was prize money and he was like, oh yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a real man, he's a mensch. Um, so born, dates born 1899 and died in 1961 um, under, under his own hand. Uh, served in World War I as a, a Red Cross ambulance driver. Uh, as part of the, 
lost generation you could say want to make a quick comment about lost generation as yeah. people don't know about that kind of reference so, yeah people the movie Owen, Owen Wilson's kind of lost actor but yeah <laughs> yeah with a broken nose yeah um so he well like you said he volunteered to be a Red Cross ambulance driver during the first world war he was invalided out and uh taken care of by this nurse and that forms in large part the plot of a farewell to arms um but yeah, so that was a coincidence yeah total coincidence yeah. um so he let's see um after world war one you know there's kind of widespread disillusionment mm -hmm. uh in the west because it was billed as the war to end all wars uh, but it proved largely inconclusive obviously and then many 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 people died mm -hmm. um in an extended you know series of trench warfare that was uh you know a travesty Brutal. yeah 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 so you know for folks who have seen the movie 1917 you can think of some of the first 15 minutes as they're going through the yeah. trenches and how very brutal brutal and uh harrowing it could be uh so this took a toll on uh, an entire generation of europeans and, and even of americans uh who felt like their idealism had come crashing down or had been kind of like broken up against the the cruel rocks of reality with the rising tide of uh, trench warfare and the French crossing tank and, you know, whatever mustard gas and all these, like these different technological advances that made war far more terrible, it seemed. <clears throat> um, so there's uh, this kind of movement in literature of, you know, modernism as it were, uh, which is this kind of a kind of distancing from the romantic movements and some of the breast beating that goes on with that. And so you have a variety of authors who are working in this kind of paradigm, uh, American and uh, European both. And they all kind of hang out in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, so you can think of like Gertrude Stein and Ford Maddox Ford, Ernest Hemingway, uh, James Joyce. F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald for his sure, wife. yeah. And his wife, um, yep. what was her name? Zena? Yeah, Zeta. Zelda? Z Zelda. Zelda. Um, yeah. yeah, so they form a kind of literary set in the 20s and early 30s. And they have their own kind of culture yeah. And Hemingway talks a lot about it in A Movable Feast, which is yeah. nonfiction. And perhaps we should even jump the gun on that one is, is nonfiction, but to get a sense of him as a man, that's one of the best um, books I could recommend anyone because they're just little short vignettes yeah. about, about writing and such. And they're just delightful tales that story about, I think it's him when Ford Max Ford is, is getting sick. So he thinks he's, Ford Max Ford's crazy. So he thinks he's like sick in this and he said, I've got 120 fever, I've got 112 fever or something. And so Hemingway just can't find a thermometer, so he grabs a piece of wood or something. And he just says, here, hold this. And he holds it, and then he gives it back to me. He goes, Am I, how'd I do? And he says, 98.4. And he's like, okay, good, I'm safe. You know, so it's, it, there's something just absolutely <laughs> delightful about it. Um, yeah, one of my, one of my yeah. other favorite vignettes from that is another Ford Maddox Ford thing where he's talking to Ford Maddox Ford, and Ford Maddox Ford, I guess, was a total blowhard and would just say wild, unsubstantiated things all the time. But he sees this guy toddling uh -huh. by, and he points him out, and he says, that's Hilaire Belloc. And uh, <laughs> Hemingway was really impressed because, you know, Belloc was a great statesman and author yeah. and land reformer, <laughs> et cetera. And then um, later, Ford Maddox Ford toddles off, and Hemingway's talking with somebody else, and he sees the guy come back, that's and he points him out. And he's like, that's, you know, that's Hilaire Belloc. And the guy corrects him. He's like, no, that's not. That's, that's Alistair Crowley, the diabolist. <laughs> I think it's Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound says well, the correction. Oh, okay. I nice. think they have, uh, yeah, that's a, that, is a, that is hilarious. But there are just tons of vignettes and that. That's a great so way to approach Hemingway if you don't want to start one of his novels, of course. Uh, Movable Feast is the way. My brother's a big Hemingway fan, so he, he always recommends that as the first way to, first way to read him. Yeah. Um, so Hemingway carries on, um, lives life, works as a war correspondent, spends a lot of time in Europe, of course. Um, mm -hmm. And then, um, well... 
it's kind of a CD in a way. I don't know. How would you, exp- I mean, how do you explain his, his kind of biography kind of stuff? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's Catholic. He's know? yeah. He's a tortured man. Um, so I think, you know, he struggles a lot with depression mm-hmm. and he struggles a lot with, it seems alcoholism. It's hard to say, you know, um, he had four wives, some of whom he asked to marry him like on their third date and some of whom he was estranged from in, yeah, just kind of terrible ways. Mm-hmm. His first wife, apparently like he had all of his, short stories to date. This is when he was a relatively young writer, all of his short stories to date. And I guess some work on a novel in a uh, valise and a suitcase that he was trying to take on a train. And it was her responsibility to get on the train. She left it on the platform and he lost all of it. And basically was estranged from her from that point on, <laughs> or at least that's how it's recounted. I mean, this is before you have iCloud. So you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. The valets, then you're, uh, you're pretty you know, devastated. Pretty um, but yeah, he was unfaithful, I think to a couple of his wives. Um, yeah. I mean, he's, he's, uh, during the Second World War, he works as a war correspondent. He also works as a war correspondent during the Spanish Civil War, yes. uh, which is an inspiration for his book, For Whom the Bell Tolls, which yes. is based off you know a particular guy in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Um, and yeah, he I mean he spends a lot of time in the Caribbean, uh, Florida Keys, Bahamas, Cuba, even, mm-hmm. and uh, which is the setting for a couple of his novels, To Have and To Have Not, and what's the other one? It's like something 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 yeah i've forgotten um maybe i'll just leave it at that to have and to have not oh islands in the stream Mm -hmm. and uh it's it's thought by some that he was actually a spy at certain points during the cold war some people say for the russians some people say for the united it's hard to say maybe both yeah it's really hard to say yeah um and then yeah like we said he he was born in illinois he ends up dying in idaho and uh Mm -hmm. uh you know by suicide by his own hand and there's even some like strangeness about those events. So a lot of mystery, yeah. a lot of mystery that surrounds his there's life, some, there's his some affairs. There's Hemingway lore. Um, and of course, it, it, he's associated with Chicago, particularly. Mm-hmm. So the museum's out there in, in Oak Park. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have, because he lived there for a period of time. Yeah. He might have been, was he born in? Uh, Oak Park, yeah. Oak Park, that's right. Exactly. North, yeah, which is beautiful. You can like see the museum. Shore. Yeah, it's very, it's very nice. And there's, the, you get a sense of Hemingway in Chicago. Uh, although he didn't live there for very long, as far as I can tell. Don't um, remember. Yeah, so, so uh, to, kind of a tortured, a little bit like Graham Greene in a way, uh, kind of Graham Greene plus David Foster Wallace, like put together or something, <laughs> you know. Um, so we don't celebrate the suicide aspect, of course, of things, but um, you get a very complex artistic person on this. Um, well, so we've got a biography of this a little bit. Before we go into the works themselves and some themes and thinking about what it means to be Catholic by reading Hemo and all of that, we'll take a short break and uh, we'll come back to you talk more about the actual novels and some of the literary themes. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash God's And we're back. God's Planning, talking about Ernest Hemingway and his works and some of the themes about them. So again, if you've read Hemingway, you've probably read The Old Man in the Sea, which one of my best friends uh, summed up as uh, Damn Hand, Where's the Boy? Um, which is not a bad, which is not a bad, a bad one about that. But that's the most famous, possibly also because it's like shortest. Yeah. It's shortest, right? If you want to be popular, write short things. Yeah. Um, it's like, um, uh, who wrote the, Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. Mm-hmm. Probably one of his shorter works. And of course, that's the one he wins the, uh, Pol- I think he wins Pulitzer for that one too. Yeah. Could have been no. I think it's the National Book Award. National Book Award. That one I'm somewhat certain It's of. unclear to me about like what the what ranking the is on these yeah, things. Exactly. You know, which one is matter? more important, which one's not. <laughs> it's like Sundance versus the Oscars. I, you know, I know they're different and some people consider one of them more important than the others. Okay. Um, but the other books that, that you might, that people might have read, of course, From the Bell Tolls, uh, The Sun Also Rises, I think 
and um, let's see, Farewell to Arms. Those are the, those are the kind of big ones. Yeah. Uh, any particular themes in there that uh, you find particularly important to, uh, if we think about as, as Catholics, as men, as Americans? Yeah. Well, I think, um, so, so Hemingway is interested in observing things. And, and he's a peculiar artist in that he has an especially good eye. And it's cool because you can see how he works it in both fiction and nonfiction. So for a lot of his novels, he actually writes another work of nonfiction that um, maybe tells more adequately or tells in a different register the story which he has already recounted. So like The Sun Also Rises yeah. takes place in Spain, you know, 1920s, 30s, kind of at the end of the bullfighting age. Mm -hmm. And then he also writes Death in the Afternoon, which is more of a comprehensive expose of the whole bullfighting culture. Or you can think of The Snows of Kilimanjaro or some of his short stories which are set in the Serengeti or Sub-Saharan Africa. And he also writes The Green Hills of Africa, again, as a more kind of sustained consideration of those things. So it's kind of like an artist who does like charcoal sketches and things. Mm -hmm. They're very detailed and a lot of mark marking up on them. And then you have the actual work itself, yeah, um, which is with the novelist of the account, which of course the novels are very life. I mean, it's not like fiction, fantastical, yeah, yeah. fantastical fiction, but like real. I mean, you could, you could imagine all of them happening, everything in them happening as well, which is there's something gritty about that. That's nice. Yeah, as I think about your artistic predilections, it's almost like Andrew Wyeth, who works in, it's like egg tempura mm -hmm, yep. and in watercolor. Yep. And the egg tempura is a kind of hyper lifelike. Uh, and then the watercolor is more impressionistic, you know, mm -hmm. so you get different shades or different emphases with nonfiction and with fiction. Uh, but something that you observe in a lot of his fiction is that at a certain point, he just despaired of completing stories because mm -hmm. he found oftentimes that trying to finish a story falsified it which is remarkable for a variety of reasons. Okay. And we can speculate as to why that's the case. But you find that a lot of his novels and a lot of his short stories end suddenly, and a lot of them end with death. Uh, so maybe I won't describe any of those in any detail because of spoilers, but a lot of them end with the protagonist dying in the saddle or with everyone close to the protagonist dying or with a feeling of kind of relative impotence yeah. or inability. Um, and then it just kind of peters out into nothing. So it's like... It's fascinating that whereas most of us, I think, are inclined <clears throat> when we're called upon to do anything creative to try to wrap it up neatly, that he did not feel the compunction of, you know, like one, um, yeah, like somehow inadequate to his task by just leaving them unfinished. Yeah, let's, I want to um, combine that with another insight and make a larger point about that. So as other, before we come back to that, <clears throat> another thing that people might, another thing that people might find distinctive about Hemingway is what he calls his iceberg theory. Of writing style, mm -hmm. so we're going to explain that quickly. What that, so the one is not his endings don't aren't endings, you could yeah. say, and his writing isn't very florid. Mm -mm. Right? No, I think. Well, I'm I'm one to talk. When I speak, I often subordinate many clauses mm -hmm. because I find it delightful to put a comma and then some kind of modifier and then some kind of dependent thing, and to string it all together as if it were like confetti or Italian sausages hanging from the ceiling of the Bruno Brothers. Uh, nice little Philly reference there. So, um, but um, his way is just to say subject, verb, complement, subject, verb, complement. And he does so almost brutally. So it's like he's got a real economical and understated style. And he finds that that's most conducive to saying what you mean. And it makes me think of Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us just don't know what we think. <clears throat> and as a result of which, we veil the ambiguity or the ambivalence of our own thoughts with florid prose, mm -hmm. but you get the distinct impression that, that Hemingway knows exactly what's he want, what he wants to say, and he'll have no truck with imprecision, or he'll have no truck with kind of 
flourishes or fancy or unnecessary decor. He just gives you the foundation, the walls, and the roof. Yeah. And, uh, and that, he thinks, is the best way by which to communicate an actual insight. Yeah, I, from, the, from my own background of philosophy and things, it's, it's the, like the British tradition of, of philosophy in, the, in Oxford around the 20th, early 20th century was to say things precisely, and not in the sense of it's turned into like a logical precision now, so you have a lot of symbols and stuff in philosophy, but in the early philosophy, you'd have say things precisely in ordinary intelligible language. So Brand Blanchard, for instance, writes a philosophical style guide book, and he talks about how he would be reading Hegel, and he'd read like one sentence, and he, put, he just puts a random sentence on this thing, and he says, I couldn't understand a word of this thing, so I just threw it against the wall. Um, and this is what most people experience reading German kind of philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's this large, florid kind of text where you just say what you're going to say. And yet Hemingway has that kind of, that, that very sharp, bare bones, but true thing. Now, I want to combine these two. So the insight of one, his, his not having endings, and his two, not having particularly beautiful prose, you could say. And yet, I would say not having endings seems to provide him with real stories mm -hmm. like they they they're, they feel more real than a completed story they feel more complete than a complete story and his prose which is very sparse and straightforward um and in very intelligible and easy to read and delightful is very literary even mm -hmm. though in a sense it's not literary in those kind of, so what do we make of the fact that in a sense hemingway is the kid who like fails at you know he goes to english comp, english comp class or something and doesn't end his stories and doesn't write using special ad adverbs and adjectives. And yet, honestly, should he, everyone, everyone loves him and he should get A's, even though like he doesn't techni technically succeed in those things. Any larger points about that? Yeah, I think that here you can maybe draw a comparison with G.K. Chesterton versus C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want to love G.K. Chesterton, but they find it difficult to sympathize with his literary style. Mm -hmm. Whereas people might approach C.S. Lewis without any particular preconception, and they just instantly fall in love with it oh, because yeah. his prose are just so clear, yes. right? Pellucid. Um, and I think that what you encounter with Hemingway is a positive vision conveyed uh, without any admixture of fluffery mm -hmm. it's just he'll tell you what he thinks and he'll communicate the thing in spades um and i think that uh, whether you agree with it or not you have to contend with it mm -hmm. because you can be expected to understand it and i think that part of his despair with endings is really just a reflection of the nature of human life because i think a lot of us go in for false redemption a lot of us wants a kind of reconciliation which isn't true or which isn't ultimate because we can't sustain the difficulty or we can't muster the perseverance that it takes to actually look towards <clears throat> a true reconciliation, a kind of eschatological mm -hmm. reconciliation. Because you may be estranged from a friend, or you may be estranged from a family member, and you might want to reconcile with that person, but the differences which have made that um, rupture mm -hmm. may continue to perdure. Yeah. So there's no real sense in saying that everything's fine when it's not, because by papering it over, you actually you know, are, are contributing to um, the injustice, as it were, you mm -hmm. know, by failing to call each thing by its right name. And so Hemingway is completely content to say that, not like in the way that Camus would say that a lot of life is absurd, but mm -hmm. content to say that a lot of life is bizarre and strange and doesn't seem to resolve in neat or tidy ways. Yeah. But it's better to speak of it as it is than to wish it otherwise. Because mm -hmm. if we speak of it as it is, then you can afford people the opportunity to enter more intimately into their life, into their reality. Um, and so as to draw from it real meaning, because he does offer you a kind of vantage on meaning. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a great point about 
the papering over something to actually get to an ending that feels more complete. We hate, most of us hate messes. We don't like uncomfortability. We want things in a tight, tidy package, but anyone who's been in life for a certain period of time realize that things aren't tidy, that things are messy, that relationships get, get destroyed in a sense over small things. And that as Christians, I'd like you to put eschatologically, like the end is in a sense already known and, and unknown. So it's the already not yet kind of thing. Like the end of the story of reconciliation has occurred. So Christ and the cross and the resurrection, like we celebrate every year, uh, the passion and the Easter Sunday. And that's the end of this, of any story. Like that's the end of, of the human story, you could say. And yet we won't get that fully appropriated until, well, the end of time, you could say, until the general resurrection, even after our own, our own deaths and resurrections in that way, when, we, when we're raised together with him. I and mean, Paul's talking, Paul's very eschatological. He's always talking about this. So that, in a sense, we know the ending, um, but we don't expect to see it in a way. And I think it's, you could go in between that and say, oh, actually, I don't know that that was the ending, the whole Christ thing, because maybe it's something else, you know? Maybe that was just like one man's story of this, um, as you find in secular modernity. And then you could, but then you could say, okay, I'm going to try to bring on and close an ending. So you, you could read, I think, a lot of people's anxieties and desires and projects and programs as... I think it's Eric Vogelin who used to call it the immunization of the Christian eschaton, the like denial of the Christian ending story, and then the attempt to bring it down from heaven already to make it to make it your own secular version of that. And that doesn't have to be in grand Marxist narratives and all this kind of stuff and politics, but it can be in our own lives in the sense of trying to say, right, I'm going to determine the ending of this. When in a sense, no, there is already ending, but it's not anywhere close to being seen yet. And that's a weird Christian tension. It's that kind of Paradox. Lewis always said something it has something something has something has true always has a certain amount of queerness about it. Um, I like that about Hemingway. I like that about Hemingway. It's very real. It's very true. Um, yeah. Very Christian in that sense. Even all the suicide. And I, I think oftentimes the most honest thing that we can do is to be beggars after the meaning of our own lives, because in a certain sense the story's been told. It's been told in Christ, but it's inexhaustible mm -hmm. insofar as that story continues to be told in each Christian as the Lord kind of works out what remains as yet to be worked out, you know, as we fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. And so we don't really know how the story plays out. We have a sense it's of, details, yeah. you know, it's, it's eschatological finality, but we don't know how it's going to be made manifest in each particular contingent and individual situation. And so we have to be beggars for the meaning of that story insofar as we are not the ones who narrate it. You know, we're, we're, a, we're a dramatis persona in it, yeah. but it's, um, it's subject to a providence beyond our competence. So like, yeah, so I think that, when you, when you leave a story off, you, you do open the door for a kind of deeper agnosticism, a healthy agnosticism, which yeah. says, I don't know the meaning of this story, right. um, but it remains. Which is my own, which is crazy because it's my own story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we like, we're a mystery unto ourselves. I think it's, um, and I like your Christ as inexhaustible. Is it um, Gerald Manley Hopkins, the Jesuit who says, uh, Christ plays in 10,000 places or something? Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful, beautiful <clears throat> line. He's, he's playing about. So we, we all have fragments of the script in a way, um, but even we don't know we're not even masters of our own script, let alone the universal script. Um, let's turn for, if we have, a, we have, I think we've got some, a little more time um, to, to deal with the, maybe the other thing you know about Hemingway, I've already alluded to it with his great sweaters, um, <laughs> but the extreme manliness of this man. Um, Hemingway is, I don't know, I mean, most people don't believe platonic forms are like instantiated <laughs> on themselves, but it seems like if there was man, then um, Hemingway is kind of a version of that in a way. Um, what is it so... What's so manly about him and what's what's like good about that? Yeah, yeah, or yeah. interesting about that or bad about that? Like what, you know, because there's it's your girl, you know, men are men are great, but men are bad. Sure. 
women are great, women are bad sort of thing. We're, we're, all, mess, we're all mixed up a bit, but yeah, Hemingway. Yeah, I think, I think it's a decidedly mixed bag. Um, and there are good things about it. There are things about it that I think subsequent critics have uh, found mm, unsympathetic. So you may have encountered, okay, so when you talk to women who read literature, they'll often say that most men who try to describe women's interior lives fail to do so. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, it's to be expected. But a lot of men comport themselves as if they could understand women's interior lives. One great exception to this is C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, the character of Orwell. Apparently, a lot of women will say, not a lot of women will say, but the women with whom I've spoken about said themes say, it's, it's, it's well done. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, it doesn't read like a man writing about a woman. It reads like a woman. Um, so so kind of a, C.S. Lewis kind of a lady man then. <laughs> that's not what we're saying. Okay. In the case of Hemingway, though, I think that ma- many people make the argument that it's man literature. You may have heard this argument made of Cormac McCarthy's books, mm. that they're just man fiction. I've, I've heard a similar thing said of Ernest Hemingway. Um, but what's funny is he often doesn't even attempt to describe what women think. So there's a kind of modesty or reserve, like you'll observe with Jane Austen. She never recounts conversations conducted between men. There's always a woman present whenever she describes conversation. And whenever she describes thoughts, it's only ever of a woman. So she's kind of modest about the thoughts and the speech of men. Um, And Hemingway is too, but there's a lot more bluster and a lot more machismo. So he Mm -hmm. he doesn't do it in a way that comes across as modest. It just comes across a way as uninterested. Um, That's true. So he doesn't really have many sympathetic female characters. The one who is probably... The most living or technicolor, as it were, is Brett in um, The Sun Also Rises, and she's a total tease. I was going to say, I mean, doesn't come off as... No. Yeah, I mean, comes off as, 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 as a technicolor character, but as one that is distracting the, yeah. the bull riders from the, main, from the main event and actually is distracting everything. Yeah. But like, on the one hand, so content-wise, Hemingway has a lot to say about hunting, about fishing, about, <clears throat> you know, like gun running about um you know like safari i mean he was in like multiple plane crashes over africa um like he was in the ritz hotel at the end you know when they when the allies entered paris i mean he's he's a dude you know he's a real dude uh and he he may have failed to adequately account for the feminine in his literature uh and on, on the one hand that is a deficiency of it but there's also a kind of cool like dude fiction aspect to it where it's just it's just driving prose right it's 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 somewhat Mm -hmm. unconcerned um with the interrelational and the interpersonal a lot of it is just man against nature or man against enemy it's very dialectical right and it gives you this real kind of distilled sense of struggle Mm -hmm. um and sometimes of triumph or sometimes of tragic failure but it's it's fascinating at the very least. Yeah, that's true. Relation, the kind of relational dynamics are not as important there. I remember in Sunnel's Rises, there's that great scene where the main character, I forget who the main character, the narrator kind of characters, uh, what, what his name is, but he's there in a, they're in a bar um, where they meet and the bull riders are getting distracted, especially the young one who is kind of one of the main protagonists. He's getting distracted by Brett. And so they're all doing this other thing and they're, they're trying to deal with women. And the, uh, the narrator just walks over to the bar and starts talking to the, uh, the bartender and they're care- they're talking about like what they think about the bulls and who the best bull rider might be. Like they're dealing with the you get and you get sense like there's the real thing and there's some like relational kids kind of stuff. You know, like you got to do that eventually. If you're gonna, but but the manly thing is the kind of the action, the plan, whatever the event would be. Um, and I think it characterizes Sam. And there's something there's something good about that. I guess this is gonna make a sound troglodytish, um, but that men like to do have to do stuff. Like we want something to do. We have projects to work at. And women are just so much more competent at relational kind of stuff. Um, and that's not to say that women can't do things and that men can't be in relationships. But there seems to be some kind of joint, uh, at least psychological, and whether you think that's constructed or not, 
for, for men doing things and getting stuff done. And Hemingway is a author of doing th- stuff and getting things done. In a certain sense, I think about, um, it's, it's not unlike the gospel of Mark where Jesus is a man of action. Mm-hmm. The words, you know, the begin phrase, the, a, a new phrase in the gospel mm-hmm. often are just end, end immediately. So, so Christ is a man of haste. He's doing deeds. He's performing healings. He's exercising demons. He very rarely pauses to recount a parable. Um, and, and sometimes Hemingway feels like a kind of return to that genre, the bio genre, mm-hmm. where you just see who a person is by what they do. And there is some introspection. There is some dialogue. There is some interpersonal uh, relationship things. But, but a lot of it is just the doing of things. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's something to it, you know, especially in reaction to a generation that got bogged down in detail. Um, You know, when you think about what went before in American literature, it could oftentimes be very lugubrious um, in its introspection. So it it can be like a a kind of strong drink, a heady drink. Is it misogynistic? I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, does he uh, underappreciate, undervalue women? I I suspect he does. Are all of his female characters somewhat lacking? Yeah, I think so. Um, But that's not to say that all of it is to be scrapped. Right. We're not going to tear down his statues quite entirely for this sort of thing. Maybe, or maybe we will. Um, well, we'll recommend to you, uh, listeners, to look into Hemingway. To say, if you're one of, one of the ladies, um, read him and see what you think about whether his characters, if he does obey his strictures on not talking about women's interior lives and whether he actually speaks well of them or something. And men or anyone reading them to just get a sense of an American author who wrote with a beautiful style that didn't seem to be finished and had endings that weren't really endings and yet are extremely satisfactory. So um, any, any other comments about Ernest Hemingway? I think that's it. No. And the big, those shirts are big and heavy and I'm sure you can buy uh, with the collars. I just remember there's something about that. Beautiful, wonderful beards. Um, so thanks for tuning in for God's planning. If you like this episode, please share it with other people and we will see you soon. Thanks for listening to God's planning a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.